I'm happy to see some new faces. Uh, that's very really good. I, I'm also happy to see the people I know. <laughs> but uh, uh, it's great to connect with uh, some new people here in Malmö and uh, continue to be connected with the people I know. <laughs> And this is the start uh, tonight of an ongoing series uh, where I want to cover the basics of meditation. Maybe that's why some new people showed up, because you feel like wanting to deepen or wanting to start uh, to meditate or making meditation more part of your life. So I will come here every uh, once, once a month, uh, one Wednesday and until summer and there will be also two uh, weekend retreats uh, Saturday and Sunday where then I will uh, more kind of guide the meditations guided meditations will be also part of the Wednesday evenings but then on the weekend retreats we can really go deeper so there's a lot to cover uh, I have been exploring meditation now since 35 years, so it's kind of my 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 hobby. <laughs> basically, I I haven't done anything else than playing with meditation. So I'm a bit excited. Uh, I want to tell you a lot, and I can't. I can't do it all in one evening, so I need to kind of slow myself down and, and pick what, I'm, what I want to say. It's really a, 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 a very exciting field to explore, and I hope I can make you a bit curious so that you, yeah, that you make meditation and self-inquiry and meeting yourself and being with yourself really part of your life. I think it's the most, it's the best thing you can do for your family. The best thing you can do for your family is to start to meditate. Really. They will, they, they will really like it. <laughs> <laughs> Some time ago, a mother told me, uh, her daughter would sometimes say to her, Mother, isn't it time for you to do a weekend meditation retreat? <laughs> so that's, uh, that's a good sign when, when your loved ones uh, um, notice actually the difference and then you know that's that, that's when when really the people around you notice a difference then you have learned something before you have not really learned something it needs to show in your way of being and in, in your way of interacting with people so when people notice that something is different then that's the signal yeah I've learned something actually in my spiritual practice 
So tonight I want to give you in the first half a bit of a way to categorize meditation. And then in the second part I want to talk a bit about some healthy attitudes to bring into the meditation practice. That's very important to find to find good attitudes so that your meditation practice is something nurturing, something healthy, something which you like to do, something which is which feels good. Uh, something which heals you and uh, something you, you really do for your well-being and you feel it and you know it and that, that that is happening and uh, to get there or to start with that the attitudes you enter meditation with are very important it's very easy to make meditation part of the self-improvement project of the I'm not good enough I need to work hard something is wrong with me I need to fix myself or, uh, or to confuse meditation with, with concentration training or and all these kind of uh, mistaken attitudes they make meditation difficult and then people stop they give it up because they have entered it with a wrong, uh, with a not I would say with a wrong, but with a with a, with an attitude which makes it difficult, unnecessary difficult. So let's uh, start very simple, just uh, sitting quietly for a few minutes. So we can make a bit of a shift from the busyness of the day. So if you adjust your posture a bit, sitting a bit stable and maybe if it's comfortable, both feet on the ground, so you have that stability. And then if you like, you can close your eyes or if you Keep them open, then you let your gaze very relaxed. And then notice what happens when you start to pay a bit more attention to yourself, to your inner life. And if you want to pay attention to yourself, if you want to meet yourself, then part of that is that you drop a bit with your attention from the head into the body. And you can use the breath as a support. So I invite you to slide on your breath with the next in-breath into the body, 
with your awareness, with your attention. So you slide into the body, even down into your feet and into your legs. And this is embracing yourself, it's like giving yourself a hug. So you meet yourself, you embrace yourself as you are, just now. So it's not, so, not about calming down or feeling better, it's really meeting yourself embracing yourself. So with the in-breath sliding into the body. Shifting from the head into the body. Then with the out-breath, see if you can let go or release. You release some of the tension, some of the doing. Okay, you notice how in the out-breath there is a bit like, there's this possibility with the out-breath to soften, to give space. So with the in-breath, sliding into the body, how's your belly? And then with the out-breath, releasing, if possible, some of the tension, some of the effort. So gently you shift gear from the doing mode to the being mode. With the in-breath sliding dropping into the trunk of your body. And then with the out-breath, giving space. And nothing is excluded, it's really <coughs> just being with what is, being with yourself. <coughs> shoulders soften, your face, particularly the forehead and the area around the eyebrows, so and when you soften that area you notice that your whole body can soften a little bit more. 
And no matter what, where you are right now, maybe you're tired or a bit nervous or you bring something difficult from the day into this moment, what we explore in meditation is what happens when you let that be okay, when you give space. <coughs> yes, this is how I feel. This is how it is just now. And then with the in-breath, meeting your own energy, befriending your own energy. And with the out-breath, letting go of the control freak, the meditator, the goody-goody girl. breath sliding, dropping into the body, and with the out-breath giving space. Softening. You have the permission to do nothing. There's nothing to do for you just now. Of course, thoughts continue to arise, and, and that's fine. There's space for them. You just take them less serious. You don't emphasize them so much. Then if you notice that you are hooked or entangled in the commentary, you unhook, you unhook from thought, and you drop back, you drop back into the belly, into your hands, into your feet. Let the bubble of your, the soap bubble of your thoughts burst again and again. And drop back into the belly, into your hands. And the most important thing in meditation is friendliness, kindness. Whatever arises, you welcome that with the breath. And then with the out-breath, softening, letting go in the belly, in the shoulders.
Then again and again, fantasies become more important. But as soon as you notice that, you drop back. Stay here with us. and returning. And returning means to drop back, to slide back, to become curious, lovingly curious about your own energy, your own presence. Give up thinking, slide on the breath. And then even if there's still some agitation or some sleepiness, other discomfort. Maybe you can already appreciate a kind of stillness, a kind of peace which is surrounding and underlying our experience here. A presence which arises when we sit quietly together in the spirit of kindness. Maybe you can have a short glimpse of that. is a stillness, a space. You don't need to calm down. You can open to that stillness, which is always, always already here. with your body.
the sound that comes and your reaction is not oh, now I can relax <laughs> and it didn't happen here it was really nice and it's, I think it's the, one of the most silly things a meditation teacher can say when the meditation session is finished and now we can relax <laughs> And if that was the case, so if, and this will happen, of course, when the end of your session comes and you feel like, then that is the one moment of meditation. And before all of that, that was just struggling and trying to control your experience. Because, because you, want, you struggle and you try to control your experience, that's why you feel relieved after the meditation. And imagine some people meditate like that. Struggling, struggling, struggling for 20 minutes and then comes the moment of meditation. So start at the end. Start with And then when you notice in the session, struggle, 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 then you, know, you can trick yourself and do like this. Ah, that's what I'm supposed to do. Starting at the end is actually good. So I will continue with that, starting at the end. And then going to the beginning. Um, so starting at the end, there is a book by His Holiness the Dalai Lama which came out recently. The title is The Heart of Meditation. <coughs> It is a, teach, a teaching His Holiness gave many years ago, but it was just recently translated. So, and in this book, His Holiness the Dalai Lama talks about the heart of meditation. So he talks about what is, what is actually the, the essence of meditation. What is meditation about from the Tibetan Buddhist point of view? So for you right now, your intention and your motivation for your meditation practice might be something different than what I'm saying now. So it's not that I try to convince you, I try to tell you now, this is what your meditation is about. It's, uh, it's important that you stay with where you are and what your needs are and what your understanding is and what you actually want to achieve or, or discover in meditation. So that's very important and I will talk a lot about that. 
Now, this will be my main, one of my main objectives objective of this uh, series is to in, encourage your own inner authority, your, your own inner knowingness, what is good for you and what kind of meditation fits you right now where you are. So maybe you are in a, maybe, uh, it's maybe stupid to say maybe, because we are po possibly all of us are in a difficult moment in our life because they, life is just one damn difficult moment after another. <laughs> yeah. So we are in a difficult moment in our life. Yeah. And maybe your initially intention with, with uh, meditation is to find a better place with that. You know, you feel it's too much. I can't cope anymore. I have too much on my plate. I have to do something. And, and that's, that's great. That's great. But then one could also ask, okay, is there something deeper? Yeah? And that's why I want to start at the end, at least at the end of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And His Holiness actually gives a short description of the essence of meditation in the undertitle of this book. And the undertitle of this book is The Recognition of Innermost Awareness. The Recognition of Innermost Awareness. Innermost. Innermost Awareness. So, his Holiness describes in this book how all meditations, and the meditations I will give you an overview tonight, they are actually pre preparation, they create the foundation for us to recognize what His Holiness calls innermost awareness. That is one of the translations of the Tibetan term Rigpa. So innermost awareness, and there's so many words for that. So, and probably you have your own words. I mean, if you have a, depending on your background. So the recognition of your essence. Maybe as a, as a Christian, you would say something like the recognition of, of, of your soul or of, of your Christ consciousness or the recognition of that which is bigger than you or the recognition of the true self. The recognition of, in the Tibetan tradition one would say, the nature of your heart, the, the, na the nature of your mind. And this recognition in the Buddhist tradition is called awakening. It's awake. It's an awakening from the from the nightmare of this mini self, which is separated from a predatory universe. To wake up from that nightmare, to wake up into truth, into the truth of who you really are. So that is 
according to His Holiness, the essence of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And mindfulness practice and breathing meditation and all the different practices I'm so excited to share with you in this next five months. I mean, it's like the Tibetan tradition is, has so many tools and, and I'm sure there's, uh, there will be practices which will feel for you as if you found, found a shoe which fits you. Yeah? So you try different shoes, oh no, this is not it. And you try another, no, this is not it. And then you have this shoe and it says, wow, that's it. And they, in the Tibetan tradition, I promise you, I need to do some advertising. Yeah? I promise you that you that you will that you will find that shoe because you find all practices. Uh, I have looked in, in many different traditions, not only the Buddhist traditions. And uh, wherever I look, I can see this is also in the Tibetan tradition. So you're in a good place. But all these practices, they make us ready. They are part of this journey of awakening. Of It's a preparation for recognizing innermost awareness. And I will talk about that for sure and share some pointers uh, and uh, how, how, we, how we can do that. So that's the end. Now back to the beginning. And maybe, the, uh, maybe here it's good to uh, present you with two different views on meditation. Which you not only find in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, but also in other traditions. And these two different views, they are called the progressive view, that's the one view, and the other view is the direct path view two different views. So the progressive view makes absolutely sense in our culture. It says something like, you are not there yet, and you have to do this and this and this and this, and if you work hard in... I don't say how long it is because it's too depressive. Let's say in, in 10 years, yeah? <laughs> in 10 years, you will get somewhere. I mean, you will get closer to heaven or to nirvana, or if you have a bit of a more modest uh, goal, then yeah, you, you do something and then you will feel better and you will be more relaxed after you have done what I tell you. And if you do it, yeah. And of course, that makes sense. It fits in our, in, in our way of thinking that it's our way of thinking is, this is not it, this is not good enough, this? No, no way, this is not it, there must be something more. So, and something is wrong with me, so I need to, you know, fix that. I need to get rid of my anxiety or my depression or whatever. And I be, need to become more compassionate or something like this. And then you start the progressive path. That's the view in psychotherapy, in, in fitness, in yoga, in 
in, in all our learning. And it makes sense. And it's part of our practice. And it will be also part of a lot of, a lot of the practices I'm going to share with you are uh, coming from the progressive view, step by step. So now there is the other view is the direct path view. And the direct path view says something like, come on, you're already there, relax. It's all here. You have already everything you need to be complete, to be whole, to be healed, to be home. You just need to recognize it. You just need to trust it. Someone needs to point you to that. And the, the direct path view would say, actually, the problem is that you think that there's something wrong with you. The problem is that you think that there's something wrong with this and that there is something in the future which you have not understood or you have not get, gotten yet or which is hidden or it's like a Tibetan secret. And, I, and you just need to read the right books or go to the right guru or do enough retreats or do enough mindfulness trainings and then you will be there. That's the problem because you're already there. And part of the uh, part of the this uh, this idea that there's work to be done is that there is actually a person on the path. That there's an that's a, that there's an I somewhere in here, a me somewhere in here, which is on the path. So that's the direct path view, and uh, I will share with you uh, pointers from that. From, from the direct path view as well. And you could say the meditation we just did was a, exactly that, a bit of a mixture of a progress, progressive view. You know, when I say bring your, bring your attention into the body, slide on the breath, release some tension. So that's all progress, progressive path method. But then towards the end, I said something like, so there might be still some movement, there might be still some tension, but, but isn't there also stillness? Listen to that. Isn't there already peace happening? That's something I said, something like that. So towards the end of our first meditation here, I shifted a bit into the direct path view. You know, I said, you know, of course, Thinking is happening, and there's you, maybe you're tired, and you're restless. But isn't there something else? Look there! Isn't, can't you feel there in the background, you know, in, in the depth of your being? Isn't there? Or isn't there already a sense of well-being? Isn't there already a sense of peace? And maybe you have had glimpses of that or not. Yeah, but that's that's how in our own practice and on our own in our own process of awakening we 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 often combine these two approaches the progressive view and the direct path view
they, they go together and they support each other. And we will, I will explore that a bit deeper also with you. And both views have their traps and their gifts. On the progressive path view is like you can fix your, you can try to fix yourself forever, and you you will never get there. It's hopeless. But the pitfall on the on the on the direct path view is that you avoid to address your wounds, your, you avoid to address your shadow, you avoid to address where there is actually some development necessary. And you imagine yourself to be in a, you know, to be already a fully enlightened Buddha or something like that. So I will, uh, throughout these uh, evenings now, I will continue to confuse you by dancing between the progressive view and the direct path view. So one of my joys is to, to confuse people. Because uh, there's nothing more, no, I can also say some, 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 sometimes I can something, I can say something stupid. So there's some, no, there's nothing more strange than a fundamentalist Buddhist. <laughs> so strange, a fundamentalist Buddhist is so strange. That does not go together. So that's why it's better to be confused and not feel, yeah, now I got it. This is how it is. No, it isn't. So before the break, just a kind of uh, one way to categorize meditation. That's just one way. So you have a bit of a frame, and, uh, and then when we go into the different practices the next few evenings, you kind of put the, you can put them back into that frame. It's not that important. It's just for those people who feel uh, it, like it helps them to feel a bit kind of it helps them to have a map of the territory which we explore. If you are not that kind of person, you know you don't need to remember what I'm saying. So one way to categorize meditation is to uh, to distinguish between stabilizing meditation and analytical meditation. That's like two categories: stabilizing meditation, analytical meditation. The Sanskrit word for the stabilizing meditation is shamatha, yeah, shamatha practice. So, and that's the kind of meditation which is probably 
most known or which we get to know first when we learn about meditation. And it's very straightforward, this kind of practices. The instruction is something like you choose an object. In the Buddhist tradition, that would be the breath. It would be uh, an image. We will talk about the different objects uh, which we can use for cultivating uh, shamatha or stabilizing the mind. And then the instruction is pretty straightforward. You identify the object, you pay attention to the object, and when you notice that you lose the, the object, you get carried away, you bring your mind back to the object, starting with the breath quite often. And the object can be very different things. And here already it is important that we let go of the idea that the only object for stabilizing is the breath. Because for many of us, the breath is not the best object. So what we need to do is, uh, and we will do that, we will play a bit with different objects so yet that you can find the shoe which fits you. And this can be, as I said, any sense object. So it can be sound, for example, music. It can be sight. It can be taste. It can be smell. It can be touch. Uh, and it can be a mental, a mental image. So this is actually, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, the favorite object of cultivating a stable mind is a mental image. For example, the mental image of your teacher, the mental image of the Dalai Lama or of the Buddha, or if you are if you are a Christian, you would use the mental image of Jesus or your favorite saint. And we will, uh, I will introduce you to that kind of practices. And um, what is important in, in, when you choose your object of the stabilizing meditation is that you like it. Because then, you know, if you like it and you're curious about the object, like, you know, like let's say you use the object <coughs> of the Dalai Lama no? or Jesus. Let's say you're really in love with Jesus. You really like him. Already as a little girl, as a little boy, you like, you like Jesus. Wow. And when you think about Jesus and you see Jesus, your heart opens and it just feels good. Yeah? And of course, you know, when you, when you use an image like Jesus, what you're actually connecting with is the inner Jesus, the inner Dalai Lama. Uh, so then, I mean, stabilizing meditation is easy because you're going to enjoy it and your mind would want to go there. So now let's say uh, a meditation teacher tells you, so we all meditate on the breath now. And he might even have an idea how exactly where, because the breath is a very uh, interesting object. And you know, there's many ways to where to play with the breath, you know, where in the body and what to focus on and 
know, how narrow the focus is and how wide. And so there's many ways to, to practice breath meditation. But let's say there's one meditation teacher who kind of found his method, it worked for him, and then he thinks that it should work for everyone else. And then you go there and you get the instruction, and it is a shoe which does not fit. And then you think, it's, that's my fault. I need to know, this is, this is how you do breathing meditation, and then your meditation practice becomes this straitjacket. And you give away your inner authority, you feel like, no, this is not good, this feels not good. Yeah, but I, I should do it. Yeah. I mean, how long do you think you will keep with this meditation practice, unless you are a neurotic, disciplined uh, perfectionist? Then you can keep it for two, three years until you have damaged your nervous system that you have, that you have to give it up. Yeah. yeah. People damage their nervous system to, through uh, forced meditation practices, which are, not, uh, which are not aligned with their preferences and with their rhythms and with their interests. So let's say you are someone who likes to, l to listen to music. Wow, there you have an object. So then, of course, then, you know, exploring the difference of, you know, having some mu music in the background to distract yourself and actually using, me uh, use using music as a meditation object. It's a big difference. But still... The, the breath is not a more holy or more sacred or a more efficient object to cultivating stabilization than music. No, if you like to eat, <laughs> there you have your object. No, and also, meditation has nothing to do to, with sitting still. Well, there's much to uh, there's much to you know, there's this idea one has to sit like this and, and then we call that meditation. But the Buddha taught not only the meditation posture of sitting but also of standing, walking, and lying down. Lie down in your meditation practice. If this meditation posture is just torturing yourself and all you are occupied is with how you look like when you sit. <laughs> His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, said, some Westerners, they just want to uh, look, look, no, they, they meditate because they want to look holy. Think about that when you go to your yoga studio. So, the different objects. And uh, by choosing the different, playing with different objects and finding the shoe which, which fits you, listening to your own authority. So the, the, you know, when I give meditation instructions here, what I would like you to, what I want to invite you to is to listen to the instructions, to notice what happens, and then when you feel ah, no, uh, no, this is, this, what a bullshit. That does not make sense. Then you let go. Probably all right. 
Probably it's bullshit. And then when I say something else and you feel, ah, yeah, wow, that's exactly, this is what I need. And, and you feel it, you know, there's something in your body, response. And that's what I want you to listen to. Because you are, there is no meditation boss on this planet. No one is in charge. Nobody has really the clue what all this is about. You have to rely on yourself. And there is a response. You will notice some of the meditation I will introduce you to, you will think, what, you know, what, what is that? And then hopefully, I can't promise that, but hopefully there will be at least one where you feel, ah, yeah, that's why I came here. This is really helpful. This is what I'm going to explore. This is what I'm going to take with me. And then you work with that. Of course, sometimes it is also nice to kind of go to a Zen place and you know get one instruction and everyone is doing the same and then you do that for the rest of your life. Um, I can understand that, yeah. So, but that's not uh, that's not what's happening in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And this can be in the beginning; it can be a bit overwhelming. It can be a bit too much because then we have all these possibilities, and then we feel, ah, oh, I have to do it all, and this and that, and then there's this panic, yeah, kind of. Um, so. Take it easy. Take it easy. You know, you have all the time you need to wake up. If you're not get it this life, <laughs> and and from the from the direct path view, you're already there. So even more reason to relax. And then you then you kind of trust that that practice which speaks to you right now and which you received instruction of, uh, this is what I'm doing now. So, And of course it will change and you will shift the practices. Maybe you will have three, four practices in your toolbox using it in different, for different purposes. Uh, so you, you, you take it easy, play with it. It's not a serious thing. I mean, it's, it's serious and it's not serious. So, the stabilizing meditation with, with object is pretty, pretty straightforward. It's easy to understand. Yeah? The most important thing here in the practice with, uh, with an object is friendliness. Drop the word concentration. Drop the word effort. Explore effortlessness and explore what it means to be friendly, to be non-violent. Well, sometimes I say, I'm teaching non-violent meditation. What is violent meditation? Violent meditation is when you try to manipulate your experience. Now, there's two ways to train a horse. That's from uh, an image from the Tibetan 
tradition. They either use horse or a yak. So there's two ways to train the wild mind of your horse. I think we can all recognize the wild mind of uh, the the wild horse of your mind, the wild horse of your mind, you know, the crazy mind. The uh, 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 so that's the wild horse. So there's two ways to train this wild horse. The cowboy way, which is trying to control, yeah, kind of to beat to beat yourself into peace in meditation. Or the second method is to give the wild horse of your mind a big pasture. So that is very important. Friendliness. And we need to explore this really in depth. If there is no friendliness in your spiritual practice, you are heading towards a wrong direction. And it does not matter what your spiritual practice is, prayer or yoga or whatever. It's very important. Maitri in Sanskrit, loving kindness. This is, we really need to explore that, what that means and how it feels. It's sometimes actually not so easy to connect with what does it actually mean to be kind with myself? How does that actually feel in my belly, in my solar plexus? How can I, how can I, how can I take care of this part of the universe which I am responsible for? And nobody else can do that. You have to do that. And all goodness arises from that. You know? All goodness towards others, all, all kindness towards others arises from your courage to take care of yourself. This is very important. And, and no matter what kind of practices you do, if you have friendliness in your practice, if you have care and kindness in your practice, something good will grow from that. So this is, to have that kindness and friendliness in your practice is actually much more important than what kind of meditation you do. It's more important to explore how you do the meditation you do. Boom, boom, boom. Or taking, taking care. So, in the stabilizing uh, uh, category, stabilizing meditation, there is another practice which is called without object, shamatha without object. So the the the, the practice uh, the practice of sh- shamatha with without object is a practice which is a uh, is leading into what His Holiness calls the recognition of innermost awareness. So it's, it's connected with a direct path view. And uh, it's a shamatha without object 
is sometimes called, in other traditions, it's called open, choiceless awareness. And this is a practice you are not going to read about in many books. And it's strange because in one, in one sense, this practice is, is optimal for us because we have such a, 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 a such a, you know, such a, uh, such, so much movement in our heart and mind because of the way we live. So, to, to, to try to calm down our crazy mind, to let the, the mind settle down, our crazy mind with shamatha, with object, is really difficult because it's so crazy, it's so, so all over the place. So, but on the other hand, the, the, the practice shamatha without object it, it, you already need to have some experience with your inner life. You need to have already some experience. What is the difference between your mind going crazy and you are unhooked from it or your mind going crazy and you're fused with it? It's two, two different, completely different things. Your mind going crazy and you are unhooked or you're fused, you're lost. Yeah? So this is something very difficult to find words for what I'm saying. So this is something we need to see and explore in our own practice. What's the difference of you know, the thoughts happening, but I'm not getting on that train? And what is, how does it feel, the thoughts happening and I'm getting on the train. Two different things. So that's why initially we need to have some practice, and that could be in one session, of uh, stabilizing with an object, for example, the sensation in your hands. So that would be one object. And then from there to kind of uh, slide into the shamatha without object, which is something, and we will, I will guide you in meditations like that. But it is something like, imagine you are by the beach. That's always a good example in Malmö. So you are at the beach. Yeah? If, I, if I would be in Switzerland, I would say, you are on the top of a mountain. But since I'm in Malmö, I say, you are at the beach. So imagine you are at the beach. And there is a seagull flying. So shamatha without object is, uh, with object, shamatha stabilizing with object, the first thing would be, ah, there's my object. Okay. Yeah? And then you get distracted or you think something and then you notice it and then, ah, the seagull. I was supposed to be with the seagull. And the seagull can be the breath, it can be, yeah, it can be one of these many objects. So now, shamatha without object would be 
panoramic choiceless awareness. Choiceless because you don't, you don't make a decision before what your object will be, because you, are, you, are, you have no clue, because you, are not, you, you don't know what's going to happen when you sit there by the beach. So you open your awareness and everything becomes your object. So it's actually not without, without object, it's called without object, but actually you could say the object is everything. So panoramic awareness, seagull flies, waves, uh, so, but also, and there we start to get into the exploration of innermost awareness, what is part of that practice of shamatha without object is the space within which all this is happening. That is also the object. So the sky, the space, not only the seagull, but also the space to which the seagull is flying. That's also the object. So now, the challenge in this, uh, in this kind of practice is that you get hooked. So let's say, instead of a seagull, there is a memory coming, flying, through the space of choiceless awareness. A horrible memory. Yeah? So the horrible memory comes up, and your mind goes, and, and gone. Yeah? So that's the challenge in, in, uh, in the practice of choiceless open awareness neither rejecting something, but also not getting hooked. <laughs>